This Halloween, I wanted to pay tribute to an extraordinary non-believer, the late, great Howard Phillips Lovecraft, best known as H.P. Lovecraft. Lovecraft was one of the greatest sci-fi horror writers of all time, or as it was called in his era, weird fiction. He's the godfather of the cosmic horror genre, creator of the elaborate Cthulhu mythos that lives on to this day, and an unapologetic atheist during a time when that wasn't exactly popular or acceptable. For Halloween this year as we give out candy with razor blades and offer our sacrifices to the behooved one, I wanted to read some of Lovecraft's writings on atheism and honor his contributions to weird fiction. I love horror movies and long before that, horror fiction. He's written some of my favorite stories of all time, created much of the basis of modern horror in film and writing, and captured a distinct, almost transcendent human experience of terror that now, when it's evoked in film and literature, is called Lovecraftian. In his house at Rilje, dead Thulu waits dreaming. Only two of the prisoners were found sane enough to be hanged, rising, and the rest were committed to various institutions. As a stiff, bloated corpse, All denied rises, a part in the ritual murders, and the word that the killing man had done by black I think I went mad then. The subjects that fascinated and haunted Lovecraft throughout his body of work included forbidden knowledge, insanity, cannibalism and human sacrifice, ancient cults, alien deities, mental deterioration, the collapse of civilization, the cosmic insignificance of human beings. These were recurring elements in his fiction. His body of work consists of around 70 short stories and novellas, which I'll be talking about soon. He was born in 1890, and on the subject of being an atheist and an anti-theist, he wrote, I am unduly secluded, though unavoidably so. Like many of us, he went by the title of atheist, but he didn't claim to know for certain that there was no god. Like most other atheists I've met, he had epistemic humility, but relative emotional certainty, virtually the inverse of the religious, who routinely claim to know that god is real, but admit to having doubts on occasion. Lovecraft said, quote, In theory, I am an agnostic, but pending the appearance of radical evidence, I must be classed, practically and provisionally, as an atheist. The chances of theism's truth being, to my mind, so microscopically small, I would be a pedant and a hypocrite to call myself anything else. End quote. He appears to have been so made that he cannot believe, at age five, asking his mother why God wasn't on equal footing with Santa Claus. When he was twelve, his mother no longer required that he attend Sunday school, since when he was there he only used the time to poke fun at religion and his adult teacher's Christian beliefs. In another correspondence on the subject of religion, an agnostic friend of his challenged him, demanding to know, quote, what he had against religion. The conversation, though it happened over a century ago, is one that everyone listening is familiar with. Sure, religion isn't true, but why be so militant? Isn't religion good for society? Lovecraft responded to his friend, quote, You have neglected to mention the very crux, namely that Judeo-Christian mythology is not true. I can see that in your philosophy, truth has so small a place that you can scarcely realize what it is that I'm insisting upon. End quote. That's something I can relate to. I had no interest in being a Christian if it wasn't literally true. Whether it's beneficial is a separate conversation, and it's one that anti-theists can win with ease, in my opinion. But honestly, don't the people who talk about the benefits of religion care whether or not it's actually true? Lovecraft goes on, all the mental vigor and erudition of the ages fail to disturb your complacent endorsement of purely pragmatic notions because you voluntarily limit your horizon, excluding certain facts and a certain undeniable mental tendency of mankind. Despite its restriction to a relatively small number, a human impulse has all throughout history proved itself as real and as vital as hunger, as potent as thirst or greed. The acute, persistent, unquenchable craving to know the issue between theists and atheists is certainly not, as you seem to think, the mere question of whether religion is useful or detrimental. Do you realize that, to many men, it makes a vast and profound difference whether or not the things about them are as they appear? I recognize a distinction between dream life and real life. I confess to an overpowering desire to know whether I am asleep or awake. End quote. 
Lovecraft was expressing a commitment to the truth that I imagine is what brought a lot of us together in the first place. He was not expressing, however, a lack of concern for the continued well-being of our society. He said that immorality offended him scientifically and aesthetically, and he believed that a social order built on lies was inherently unstable. In other words, he wasn't just an atheist, he was an anti-theist. Quote, Now let us view morality, which has nothing to do with any particular form of religion. Morality antedated the Christian religion, and has many times risen superior. To me, the question presents no ground for connection with the groveling instinct of religion, and I cannot consider morality the essence of religion, as you seem to. End quote. Christopher Hitchens said of Lovecraft, quote, It is fairly safe to assume that he first discovered his objection to theism when he contemplated his favorite subject, which was the cosmic. End quote. He had a lifelong love of science and astronomy in particular, which greatly factored into his view of religion. Quote, so far I have seen nothing which could possibly give me the notion that cosmic force is the manifestation of a mind and will like my own infinitely magnified, a potent and purposeful consciousness, which deals individually and directly with the miserable denizens of a wretched little flyspeck on the back door of a microscopic universe, and which singles this putrid excrescence out as the one spot where to send an only begotten son, whose mission is to redeem those accursed flyspeck inhabiting lice, which we call human beings. As you can probably tell from that quote, Lovecraft was a bit misanthropic. As French writer Michel Welbeck put it, he was a rejecter of life. Lovecraft had more to say about materialism and religion, and much of it is very interesting and idiosyncratic. There's even a collection of his writings on atheism, published as a book, and he's featured in Christopher Hitchens' Portable Atheist. In an unfinished nonfiction work, The Cancer of Superstition, he argued that all superstitious beliefs are relics of a common prehistoric ignorance in humans. We have an inborn inclination that persists only through mental indolence of those who reject modern science. The book was actually a rare break for Lovecraft. He'd been commissioned by Harry Houdini to write it, but Houdini died before it was finished, and Houdini's wife, far more inclined towards superstition, never saw to the completion of the project. Since we're in the Halloween spirit, I wanted to take the opportunity to talk about Lovecraft's writing and his artistic contributions. He was an extraordinary non-believer, an anti-theist, which was remarkable in his day. And on a personal level, horror is a bit of a through line for me. For whatever reason, ever since I was young, I loved reading horror fiction. Back when I was a Christian, these things were strictly regulated, since they were obviously demonic, and a lot of what I read was contraband. To Lovecraft, Weird fiction creates an exhilarating sense of fear and wonder that he elevated to the status of a transcendent, spiritual experience. We can shed some light on why the particular subjects I mentioned earlier captured his attention by putting his life in context and taking a brief look at his depressing and very strange biography. Born in 1890, he died in 1937 at the age of 46, spending most of his life in the Northeast and his beloved Providence, Rhode Island. He was an only child and was born into relative affluence. His family life was far from healthy. His mother's side were wealthy aristocrats with rumors of inbreeding in their background, while his father was a traveling salesman. His father, when Lovecraft was three, contracted syphilis and suffered a nervous breakdown. He died five years later, but Lovecraft never saw his father after he'd been committed to the asylum. He eventually died of neurosyphilis, which caused his mother to be, as Lovecraft described it, permanently stricken with grief. His mother appears to have been something he called in one letter a touch-me-not, which meant she didn't like physical contact from anybody, including her husband and her son. She had never shown any signs of her husband's disease, probably because of her aversion to physical contact, and had been cold and distant with her son for the first few years of his life. But after her husband's death, she went to the other extreme and became doting and affectionate to a fault, never letting him out of her sight. His mother eventually had her own nervous breakdown, and like her husband, was also committed to a psychiatric hospital, where she would also eventually die. 
And keep in mind, these were mental hospitals from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. When Lovecraft was still young, being raised by grandparents and aunts, the family's inherited wealth was mismanaged by the surviving members and was quickly lost. He never shed his aristocratic sensibilities and greatly resented his class demotion. The loss of both his parents and family wealth made him bleak about the future. However, he always found joy in his intellectual and artistic pursuits. From a very early age, he loved science and mythology. Lovecraft was suicidal in his teenage years, but he found solace in writing. He was too mentally and physically fragile to go to college or much school before then. After missing several years of school, when he finally did go, he displayed terrible tics and social awkwardness. According to one historian, the written accounts of his peers described him as withdrawn, yet openly welcoming to anyone who shared his fascination with astronomy, inviting anyone to look through his prized possession, which was his telescope. And though he rarely attended school, he spent nearly all his time reading and writing, mostly on science, mythology, and weird fiction. He loved Arabian Nights and Edgar Allan Poe, and even read scientific journals before he was a teenager. He was only once married, a relationship with a woman seven years his senior that lasted only a few years. Not exactly a good-looking man, he was anxious about his appearance, and as Amber Frost puts it, looked like a normal man seeing his reflection in a spoon. There's one Lovecraft story where a friend convinced him to come to a brothel when they were visiting the South, and upon arriving, they came to find out that all the prostitutes knew who Lovecraft was because they all read the pulps. Pulp magazines, which were inexpensive fiction publications, were the only outlets he could get himself published in regularly, and it didn't provide a good income. In fact, he was never able to support himself through his writing. Near the end of his life, living in relative seclusion, he bragged in his letters how he could live off a loaf of bread and a can of beans for a week. Because of his poverty, he often went without food to pay for stamps so he could keep writing letters and submit his stories. He died at age 46 of cancer in obscurity and poverty. The obituary that was written for him in the local paper was littered with mistakes, large and small. He wrote shortly before his death, I have no illusions concerning the precarious status of my tales. H.P. Lovecraft led a brief and tortured life, plagued by illness, isolation, and failure. He remained unknown for many years. However, his work has since taken on a second life, and has surprisingly gone on to achieve the highest levels of literary and cultural success. It wasn't until over half a century after his death that his work was published by Penguin Classics, and finally, the Library of America, which some have regarded as the official canonization of his writing. But Lovecraft's posthumous success and popularity isn't confined to the world of literature. It's had so many odd cultural manifestations that no one could have predicted. Tattoos, lingerie, Metallica songs, entire podcasts, there's even a Dungeons & Dragons-style tabletop role-playing board game based entirely on the world he built, named The Call of Cthulhu. There are Lovecraft festivals in Sweden, as well as in France, Oregon, and of course, Providence, Rhode Island, where fans from around the world make the pilgrimage to his grave at Swan Point Cemetery. He was originally buried without a tombstone, and his growing fan base chipped in money to buy him a proper headstone in Swan Point. His compelling style and the complex universe of mythology he created has generated a cult following. Once you acquire a taste for his writing, there's a sort of addiction and interest that's hard to explain. In the 1970s, one fan rode a bus for days to ensure that some of his writing would be preserved in a university library. He's had a profound influence over writers such as Stephen King, Neil Gaiman, Clive Barker, Joyce Carol Oates, William S. Burroughs, Michelle Welbeck, George R.R. R. Martin, Alan Moore, and Robert Block, who was mentored by Lovecraft personally and went on to write Psycho, the story of Norman Bates that went on to become one of Alfred Hitchcock's most iconic films. Lovecraftian horror and mythology was an inspiration in the films Alien, Prometheus, and Evil Dead. 
Arkham Asylum, featured in the Batman universe, is named after Lovecraft's fictitious Arkham, Massachusetts. His influence and work even appears in the TV shows Rick and Morty, and South Park, and countless others. Alex Garland's recent film, Annihilation, is essentially Lovecraft's The Color Out of Space, with a handful of alterations. He's also influenced the directors John Carpenter and Guillermo del Toro. Even the comedian actor Patton Oswalt is an enormous fan. He's one of the pilgrims who's traveled to Lovecraft's grave. Lovecraft created an entire mythology, a pantheon of alien gods and ancient forces that are mostly malevolent from the human perspective. He constructed many fictional elements that recurred in his stories. The Old Ones, the Necronomicon, Miskatonic University, and the town of Arkham, all fictitious creations of Lovecraft's, all appear in many of his works, but also in film and literature that he had no hand in writing. This is because unlike many other authors, he actively encouraged people to borrow from and build upon the universe he created. Some have taken this farther than he intended, though Lovecraft was a materialist who denounced all religion and spiritual beliefs, the Cthulhu mythos he designed has been adopted by a large number of occultists and witches who actually worship some of his gods. They're aware of who Lovecraft was, a fiction writer, they just think he was only saying it was fiction, or that he was tapping into something real, whether he was aware of it or not. I've seen a few of them point to the fact that many of Lovecraft's stories were inspired by nightmares he had to support this. Many of them also believe that the imaginary book in his stories, called the Necronomicon, which contains black magic and some history concerning the old ones, actually exists as a real book. Most of his fanbase are not occultists, or if they are, they're ironic occultists, but there are true believers. One scholar, who was giving a lecture on Lovecraft's mythology, because he thought some of these people were likely in the audience, felt the need to open with the declaration that the Necronomicon was not a real book. One of his most recognizable creations, Cthulhu, a malevolent, multi-tentacled deity, is a member of the race of aliens called the Old Ones, many of whom are still worshipped by pagans and cults of human sacrifice. In his house at Rilje, dead Thulu waits dreaming. They worshipped, so they said, the great Old Ones who lived ages before there were any men and who came to the young world out of the sky. Those Old Ones were gone now, inside the earth and under the sea, but their dead bodies had told their secrets and dreams to the first men who formed a cult which had never died. The great old ones spoke to the sensitive among them by molding their dreams, for only thus could their language reach the fleshly minds of mammals. His work is often misunderstood, which I suppose is part of becoming a victim of your own success. His art has reached a level of popularity such that there are fans of his work who haven't read very much of it, or just regurgitate something about the unknown and think that's about all there is to it. Many actual readers of Lovecraft also think the unknown is central to understanding his work, but I respectfully disagree with the degree of significance attributed to the unknown in his work. One of his most frequently quoted lines is, The oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear, and the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown. If I'm being honest, however, I never would have guessed this loomed so large in the imagination of Lovecraft or his readers from his fiction alone. Mystery, sure, but the idea that fear of the unknown should be the first thing in a discussion about Lovecraft, or even the only thing someone needs to know about Lovecraft, in my opinion does his work a disservice. There's a lot more to his writing and the numinous experience he's conjuring than simply the fear of the unknown. One Lovecraft-inspired movie that comes to mind that captures this feeling of fear of the unknown effectively would be The Endless from 2017. There's a genuine dilemma in the film, and the fear of the unknown on one side of the scale actually does a lot of emotional work and drives the plot forward. Unfortunately, the Lovecraftian label is sometimes slapped on out of laziness, I won't say which one, but I saw a movie recently that literally did not come up with an explanation for the plot and just called it Lovecraftian. You know, because of the unknown. Oh, does our movie not make any sense? Let's call it Lovecraftian. The director actually said 
that he had no interpretation of the events in the movie. Maybe you think authorial intent doesn't matter very much, but there should probably at least be an authorial intent, right? I think the connection between Lovecraft's writing and the unknown is real and important, but overblown. It's certainly present, but if you asked me to describe what makes Lovecraft's writing what it is, I don't think it would be among the first five or so things I mentioned. So if that's what you get out of his work, more power to you, but I think it takes up far more than its fair share of the conversation about Lovecraft's work. Lovecraft lived in a time of groundbreaking scientific and philosophical achievements. His work was, in part, a product of the zeitgeist that humankind was going to conquer the entire universe. 19th and early 20th century philosophers and scientists all seemed to create massive explanatory projects, all-encompassing, grandiose models that were driven by a string of astounding achievements and victories in understanding the natural world. Lovecraft, though obsessed with science, doubted that this was all good news. It had nothing to do with theism, he just doubted that everything we could learn about the universe was going to increase our psychological well-being. In his fiction, his victim protagonists acquire forbidden knowledge, driven by that human impulse to know, and this knowledge tortures them and often drives them to madness. They witness cosmic horrors and can no longer live normally, having lost a bit of their sanity. They sometimes warn of the destruction of civilization by forces we don't understand, having lost the overconfidence of humankind and having caught a glimpse of how insignificant we are in a cosmos that keeps getting bigger and bigger and less and less concerned with us the more we learn about it. He wanted the truth, but he was afraid of what it might be, since he knew there was no reason to expect reality to conform to the needs and desires of human beings. It maddens me when I dream of it. The most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. The sciences, each straining in its own direction, have hitherto harmed us little, but some day the piecing together of dissociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality and of our frightful position therein that we shall either go mad from the revelation or flee from the deadly light into the peace and safety of a new dark age. Theosophists have guessed... Much of Lovecraft's writing was inspired by the quest for forbidden knowledge, the deterioration of the individual and society at large, often as a result of acquiring this forbidden knowledge. I often quote the line from the intro of The Call of Cthulhu about fleeing into the relative peace and safety of a, quote, new dark age, which, yes, is extremely nerdy, but I think it has prophetic value. Should we really expect all knowledge to be enlightening? Is there really nothing we could learn in our search for the truth that we would simply be worse off knowing? Given Lovecraft's belief in the cosmic insignificance of human beings, there's no reason to think the truth will set us free in every case. We have about as much reason as an insect to suppose that true knowledge about the universe and our place therein will only serve us well. What is my purpose? You pass butter. Oh my god. We could acquire knowledge that would be our undoing. We could learn things that would simply degrade the quality of our lives. And this insight is not limited to our spiritual and psychological well-being. The kind of cosmic horror that Lovecraft is famous for evokes a particular experience from his audience. Lovecraft said, quote, The one test of the really weird is simply this, whether or not there be excited in the reader a profound sense of dread and of contact with unknown spheres and powers, a subtle attitude of odd listening, as if for the beating of black wings or the scratching of outside shapes and entities on the known universe's utmost rim. The ominous beating of black wings just beyond the utmost rim of human understanding could represent any number of coming catastrophes. In the first half of the 20th century, we developed technology based on our understanding of nature that has the potential to destroy organized human life. Lovecraft died before he saw it, but he may yet be vindicated. Scientists who are concerned with Fermi's question about the seeming lack of intelligent life have speculated that there may be a civilizational filter that is very hard if not impossible to pass through, 
A species may be intelligent enough to create advanced technology, but may not be intelligent enough to responsibly handle that technology. Maybe it's created by a handful of especially smart people who wouldn't use it in an irrevocably destructive manner, but it comes to be controlled by others who aren't wise enough to wield it. Perhaps we could create technology that no one is wise enough to handle. Improving our understanding of the atomic realm was undeniably advancement. The Industrial Revolution and the subsequent developments were by several metrics tremendous advancement. But that's the horror of the civilizational filter. Genuine intellectual progress has created two existential threats that we know of, and it's not remotely clear that we're going to overcome them. The filter of technological advancement is an especially poignant example of forbidden knowledge leading to the collapse of civilization or the psyche of the individual, three of Lovecraft's major recurring themes. When one worries about some existential threat that has materialized as a result of our quest for knowledge, they're hearing the beating of black wings that Lovecraft described. And only time will tell if our descendants will flee into the peace and safety of a new dark age. slow-moving, Chief? Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. We need to take a moment to discuss a pressing issue, namely fast zombies. There is some disagreement over when the original fast zombies were depicted. The conversation is usually restricted to film. No one seems to agree, but one of the earlier dates is 1980 with Nightmare City, some place that is late as the 1990s or the early aughts. However, in 1922, H.P. Lovecraft published a story called Herbert West, Reanimator, that depicts fast zombies, decades before the usual candidates. I haven't read a lot of horror that was written prior to the 20th century, so it's possible that Lovecraft wasn't the first. Frankenstein's monster was arguably a zombie, and he was fast. But I do know that Herbert West, Reanimator, came out a few years before 28 Days Later. In Lovecraft's early childhood, after reading Arabian Nights, he created the name Abdul Alhazred and used it as a pseudonym in some of his childhood writing, and eventually incorporated Alhazred as a character in the mythos, as the author of the Necronomicon. Frequently borrowed, almost as often as Cthulhu, the Necronomicon is a forbidden book of black magic and knowledge concerning the old ones that could drive you to insanity if you read it, as it drove its author to insanity. Lovecraft wrote a short document describing the history of the book and its author. He once said that when creating fictitious historical figures and texts, you should write as if you're trying to perpetuate a convincing hoax. He would often reference several real books and historical figures and slip in just one imaginary person or document. Oftentimes the fictitious entity was claimed to exist in some enormous real book that everyone had heard of, but no one had read. And as we know, he was actually successful in his writing technique of perpetuating a convincing hoax, since many take some of his stories literally. Abdul al-Hazred was a Yemeni pagan and poet who lived centuries ago, worshipping alien deities, including Cthulhu. He visited the ruins of Babylon and spent ten years alone in the great southern desert of Arabia before settling in Damascus. Those who have dealings with the book Al-Hazred composed generally come to unpleasant ends. Alhazred was devoured horribly by invisible forces in broad daylight before a large number of terrified witnesses. As the meme correctly states, everything in Lovecraft either ends up dead or insane. But his stories don't lean on gore, which I appreciate. He generates a slow-burning sense of madness, and does so in a compellingly detached and dense writing style. Many of the heroes slash victims in his writing are educated or academics, and their narration is frequently based on their own writing or papers that were found. They're analytical characters and attempt to remain tethered to reason while facing some terrifying monstrosity that they're coming into contact with, which subtly heightens the fear. The formal style and scientific distance and description creates the sense that this plunge into madness 
isn't the result of hysteria, or instinctual, primal fear, or a suspension of rational faculties. It all makes the narrator's gradual loss of sanity all the more frightening. That is what they say I said when they found me in the blackness after three hours. Found me crouching in the blackness over the plump, half-eaten body of Captain Norris, with my own cat leaping and tearing at my throat. Now they have blown up Exum Priory, and shut me into this barred room at Hanwell with fearful whispers about my heredity and experiences. When I speak of poor Norris, they accuse me of a hideous thing, but they must know that I did not do it. They must know it was the rats, the slithering, scurrying rats whose scampering will never let me sleep, the demon rats that race behind the padding in this room and beckon me down to greater horrors than I have ever known, the rats they can never hear, the rats, the rats in the walls. Not everyone is as enthralled by Lovecraft's writing style and mythos as I am. Some curmudgeonly and joyless critics really don't like his writing style. Actually, some hate his writing altogether, and those people are wrong. The criticisms are highly predictable. Too many adjectives and adverbs. It's overwritten. Many seem to think that in identifying excessiveness in his writing, for example, so many adjectives, they've pointed to some deficiency. Apparently, they think something like that could never be intentional. But plenty of films come to mind that involve some kind of intentional excess to achieve a desired effect. For example, most of Tarantino's movies involve some kind of intentional excess. If this is allowed in film and music, I don't see why not literature. Something can seem, and in fact be, gratuitous, but especially talented artists are able to use gratuitousness to make something great and distinctive. It's a risk to break conventional rules. And most who try to do so fail, and you're doomed to be misunderstood by many if you do. And Lovecraft is just a case where some people think he succeeded, and some think he did not. It's not really unique to him. His particular problem is that he's in a niche genre, so not everyone wants to, or can experience, what he had in mind. To them, it probably does just seem like bad writing. There are some genres that don't do anything for me, so I can't really distinguish between good and bad in that arena. Going back to Lovecraft's excessiveness, unfortunately many think irony is the only conceivable form of intentional access or gratuitousness. It's often the case, but it's not an absolute. Irony is also self-aware, but it usually serves to deflate or deconstruct the object of the irony. But similar methods can be employed to conjure something that isn't ordinarily reached with orthodox methods that are mainstream critic approved. Sometimes you have to turn a dial all the way up, or do something unusual and out of the ordinary to reach something unusual and out of the ordinary. This can go very, very wrong, and usually does. But every once in a while, an artist can break traditional rules and conjure something amazing. Experiences out of the ordinary can be reached by methods out of the ordinary. Lovecraft is conjuring that transcendent experience of horror, not everyone has had this feeling, which is why I believe he's often misunderstood. Do people really think they're giving Lovecraft news when they point out his excessiveness? It's intentional. He's taking you somewhere. There are many other criticisms of Lovecraft's writing. His stories are heavily expository. They spend a lot of time with the narrator, simply describing things outright. There is very little dialogue, if any. And the conventional rule of show-don't-tell is brazenly ignored. He captured some of that late 19th century grandiosity in his fiction. His writing was also intentionally old-fashioned, which some critics take as disingenuous. His prose was antiquarian for the time he was writing, which was nearly a century ago. Lovecraft pined for 19th century culture and customs. Sometimes he would date his letters in the wrong century, like 1822 instead of 1922. And as you might surmise from his personal biography, he looked to the past with more romanticism than the future, for which he had little hope. The formalism and purposefully archaic style of his prose intensifies the feeling of horror, the academic, scientific analysis of the existential dread encountered is a very compelling approach and augments the feeling of fear. His stories often take the form of papers, journals, or letters of the victim protagonist, it's sort of the literary equivalent of found footage. It's kind of playful, 
it adds a sense of discovery to the reading. One of my favorite Lovecraft stories, Dagon, is the suicide note of a morphine addict. I also happen to appreciate the sparsity of dialogue. I don't have the same compulsive need for dialogue that every English teacher seems to have. Dialogue is hard to write, and very few authors are actually good at it. As Charles Bukowski said, avoid excessive dialogue. Two guys talking don't do much for me. Another criticism I've heard is that he includes the mystical and mythical elements of his work as if the reader already has knowledge of those things. Despite the expository nature of his writing, very little is devoted to explaining the mythos. Names of fictional deities, books, cults, civilizations, and pseudo-historical elements are thrown around freely, as if these things were common knowledge. It's almost necessary to have read all the mythos to properly understand all the references being made. Not only do I find the mythos fun, I actually think his refusal to lend too much of the exposition to explaining the mythos in any one story is one way he draws you in. You end up leaving with questions, and it's fun piecing things together. It leads to a sense of discovery. It's a better method of world building than encyclopedically giving the reader information or laying out a complicated fictional universe all at once. That would be bad exposition. His encouragement of everyone's creative participation in his elaborate mythic universe makes learning about the mythos more exciting. It's more fun when you get to be a part of it, and many creators of movies, TV shows, and books have borrowed elements of his mythos in their own work. In fact, his mythology interests actual scholars of mythology. Lovecraft didn't take well-worn paths in literature. Much of what draws me to his writing, the sparseness of dialogue, the framing of reading from found papers, the expansive mythos, the old-fashioned, analytical, and dense prose, those are all supposed to be strikes against him. But why are those things inherently bad? He certainly breaks rules of thumb, but those aren't inviolable laws. For me, the point is to induce a transcendent experience of fear and he's more successful in that than most. That Lovecraft was taking some of the less well-worn paths to get there makes him more interesting. It's true that if Lovecraft handed in one of his stories to an English teacher, it would come back covered in red marks, too many adjectives, not enough dialogue, what are you talking about here, etc. If the complaint is that his style isn't a general guide for writing, then sure, I would agree with that. There are more ways to screw up his form than to get it right. Do not try to emulate Lovecraft. You can try to conjure the same feelings he did, but you'll almost certainly fail if you try to do his thing. He was uniquely suited to pull off his very specific style. If you flagrantly violate the conventions of a field and do your own thing, it's a surefire way to achieve great success or make a lot of people hate you, or both. I'm not going to defend every single story he ever wrote, because there's certainly a range of quality within his body of work. His best is amazing, but I've read a couple lower tier stories and thought they seemed like a first draft, but I refuse to, as some fans have, retreat from how much I love his work because a handful of professional critics have disparaged his writing. Of course, people's tastes vary. That's obviously fine. It seems to me, however, that many of his critics are stuffy traditionalists who have sticks up their asses about orthodox writing conventions. If you already know Lovecraft, you probably know where we're going next. Lovecraft was deeply flawed as a person, and I don't want to euphemize or sugarcoat his flaws. He was extremely racist, and of course he was born in the late 19th century, but his racism is vexing to many of his fans because it's beyond the racism you can expect even from the figures of that time. With a couple of notable exceptions, the racism in Lovecraft's stories is pretty standard 1920s racism. Allusions to phrenology, throwing around the word savage a little too flippantly, the horror at Red Hook is usually considered to be the worst of it, also the rats in the walls, which is one of his best stories, but in it his cat is named a racial slur, but it's really his letters and poems where you can read his jarring diatribes that sometimes entertained violence against just about everyone who wasn't the right kind of white person. It's 
people a lot. When I tell people about the show we do, they go, oh, is that the racist guy? It comes up more often now. And we're happy to talk about it. We talk about it on the show. Well, but I was wondering yeah. if that, and I, but, and I think that also plays into the larger conversation that a lot of people are having now, which is, can you separate the artist from their work? Oh my God, yeah. And, and also there's an interesting thing about Lovecraft that adds, I think, to the poignancy of him was, yeah, he was a pretty virulent, virulent? I'm sure I'm saying that, that, that uh, word wrong. He was he was well, pretty, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> he was pretty fucking racist. Yeah. yeah. But he was pretty fucking racist in that he was young, sheltered, very kind of fucked up mm -hmm. and wrote that thing about if I was on the subway in New York and had a machine gun, I would just spin around and kill all these blacks and Jews and he had stories where the ultimate horror is that someone is of mixed race. Like exactly. that's that's literally you're like wait so a minute. Terrifying. What the hell is mm -hmm. this? But then as he got older, it seemed like maybe he was, he never got a chance because he died, mm -hmm. but he was starting to visit fans and travel more. I There's part of me that wonders if he had lived into his 50s and 60s, would he have looked back on his, because he did have a almost lethal form of self-regard where he could really look at his shortcomings. And I wonder if that would have intensified or mm -hmm. if he would have just become even a worse crank. You only get so much wiggle room of going, well, he was of his time because there were plenty of people at that time that didn't have those fucking exactly. attitudes. So saying that he was of his time was his way of going, hey, he just didn't evolve. He yeah. just didn't evolve. But maybe he would have, yeah. but, you know, I don't I know. Mean, have, I do so can we separate Lovecraft. the art from the artist? In the case of Lovecraft, it's complicated. As you can see from his biography, his strange and tortured life, who he is, with all his neuroses, is part of the experience. I think separating him from his writing would take something away from it. The author Laura Miller said, quote, The unsavory manifestations of Lovecraft's dread can't be surgically removed from his fiction by an act of willful blindness. To the contrary, they help us understand it. But to do that, we need to accept the truth. This isn't the same as accepting Lovecraft's racism. You can acknowledge, contemplate, and discuss his character without feeling obliged to reject his work as a whole. End quote. Some have found Lovecraft too flawed to read his work but surprisingly not that many. There are a few exceptions here, but the majority of non-white authors I could find who had something to say about Lovecraft made it clear that they despised his views, but still loved his work. For her book, Who Fears Death?, the author Nettie Okorafor won the World Fantasy Award. The recipient is awarded a bust of Lovecraft for excellence in weird fiction, but Okorafor was conflicted about keeping Lovecraft's head around her house, and she came to the conclusion Quote, this is something people of color, women, minorities must deal with more than most when striving to be the greatest that they can be in the arts. The fact that many of the elders we honor and need to learn from hated us. End quote. She doesn't pull any punches about how angry Lovecraft's racist letters and poems made her, but she never advocates boycotting Lovecraft's work or reducing it to his personality. In fact, despite her scathing blog post, she still compliments Lovecraft. She accepted the award while making her feelings about him as a person very clear. It's an obvious point, but it nonetheless needs to be said that there is aesthetic value entirely separate from ideology. You can disagree with an artist's ideology or morals or behavior and still appreciate their art on a purely aesthetic level. In fact, you can disagree with the ideology in the art itself and still love it based on the aesthetic value alone. To elaborate, I'd like to introduce an archetypal figure that I'm going to call the 80-year-old church lady. To old church ladies, there is no inherent aesthetic goodness. There is only moral agreement or disagreement. This is a bad movie because it endorses something I don't like. Or not even endorses it, just depicts it. Just showing it is the same as endorsing it in their minds. To quote Matt Chrisman, it reflects a broad, deep, and harmful trend in popular culture in the past decade, which is the creeping belief that the deficiency of quality of a work, whether it be storytelling or craft or aesthetics or anything, can be filled with good politics. That if you have the right intentions and you're promoting the right idea, you don't have to give your best. It doesn't have to be that good. End quote. This Christian movie is a good movie because it depicts and endorses things I agree with. This is good art because I agree with it morally. This is bad art because it violates my delicate moral sensibilities. I used to solely associate 
this art-destroying brainworm with old church ladies, but unfortunately, it's infected lots of others who can no longer appreciate art on its own merits or for its own sake, but rather say, this is good art because I agree with it, and this is bad art because it violates my moral principles. Again, it might not even be the ideology of the art. It might just be something that's depicted in the art that's violating their moral principles. Another point worth mentioning is that the creation of art is amoral. There are countless historical examples that prove that moral virtue, or wisdom, is just not required to achieve artistic greatness. John Lennon was a wife-beater. It's a cliche to point this out, but it's nonetheless true. If you really want to start going down the road of not enjoying the art of problematic people, there will be almost nothing left, and you'll have turned into an old church lady along the way. Most of Lovecraft's fans just see dealing with his personal history as a part of reading Lovecraft. It's also just a part of trafficking in the horror genre. I mean, not Lovecraft's specific problems, but reading a genre that's driven by conjuring up fear in people means that we're talking about what makes humans fearful. Once you start down the path of exploring human minds and what scares them and why, you'll come away with plenty of insights that aren't always flattering to humans. Plenty of the things that terrify us are entirely straightforward. It's not a deep mystery why we don't want to be tortured, for example, but the horror of Lovecraft's writing frequently lies within the mentality and psychology of his characters, which is one reason his personal history shouldn't be ignored. This isn't to say that most horror is ultimately rooted in the worst of human tendencies, or even most of Lovecraft's horror, or that most of the work in this genre supports an ideological side. There is no discernible ideological through-line for all of horror, as some have suggested. It's been used in service of both sides of ideological disputes. There were anti-communist horror movies, like the 1950s sci-fi films that were produced at the height of the Red Scare and McCarthy's Witch Hunt that transparently depict alien invaders as icons for communism. And there have also been anti-capitalist horror movies, like American Psycho, The Purge movies, and They Live. Lovecraft made the horror at Red Hook, Jordan Peele made Get Out. The genre doesn't have a built-in ideology. If it seems like I'm weirdly hammering on this point, it's because this is an ongoing debate in which many have argued that the genre of horror is a bad thing inherently. When I was young, it was because of the devil. For many others, it's because it reinforces a bad ideology or negative element of culture. But I don't think this can be true because fear is deeply personalized. Whatever induces fear in you won't necessarily have the same effect on someone else, which is why there's no ideological through-line for the genre as a whole. Comedy is similarly personalized, which is why it also doesn't have an ideological through-line. It doesn't make any sense to condemn the entire genre of horror any more than it makes sense to condemn the entirety of comedy. Sorry if you were unaware of this debate and you're just confused, but I love horror, and it's insane to me that some people want to destroy an entire genre of film and literature because they think it's inherently morally bad for whatever reason. I have plenty of links in the description for you if you're interested in hearing more of H.P. Lovecraft. I've linked some criticism of him on his views and his writing. There's also a great podcast that explores his work and those he inspired called H.P. Podcraft. I've also linked some free audiobooks that are on YouTube. Many of them were recorded decades ago on old equipment, which I think greatly contributes to the experience, and the narrators are great. Sometimes on an overcast day I'll just put one of those on and go for a walk, and the clips I've been using throughout are from those. And of course I've linked the Portable Atheist that contains one of Lovecraft's letters, and one entire book that compiled all of Lovecraft's writing on atheism, for which Christopher Hitchens wrote the foreword. Happy Halloween, everybody. I've been Emerson Green, and I'll talk to you next time.
Can I, for no reason, can I tell you my really goofy Lovecraft story? Yes, yeah, really absolutely. quick. I years ago, I'm such a Lovecraft nerd. I took a gig at Lupo's in Providence just so I could. And it paid. I mean, it, it to, to get the plane ticket and for what I was getting paid, it canceled each other out. But it was a free trip, and I wanted to go to Swan Point Cemetery and visit Lovecraft's grave. Mm. So I take a cab. During the day, and it's a perfect, it was like light rain, kind of windy. I'm like, oh, this is so, oh, this is so perfect. <laughs> so then the, the cab driver's driving me around Swamp Point. I can't figure out where the grave is, where it is. And um, so finally, and, and a couple times we kept passing this woman. She was like a, like a park ranger type or like the attendant in the, in the, the cemetery. And she's like this squat, um, like mid-20s black woman in her, in her vest, standing by her car, you know, and... I'm like, let me pull over and ask her. Can we just pull over here? He pulls over, and I'm I'm not exaggerating. I open the door, I step, I step out of the car. You know, she looks at me for this length of time, and she goes, "You want that monster man?" <laughs> and she just sort of pointed. <laughs> she's like, "Oh yeah, one of these guys, right over there, man." And I realize she's right near the Phillips family, like obelisk. Yeah. And that's what she does. She looks for nerds. Oh yeah. Right over there. She's you want professional that bullshit. Nerd. Right over there. Professional nerd wrangler. She was. And then I, of course I went there and there's like foreign coins on top of yeah. the I am Providence and the little scraps of poetry and you know. Yeah. It was really eerie.